afternoon, everybody. We're going to get started. And uh, before we get started with our the GE Center Colloquium, I wanted to know if anybody had any announcements or updates that they wanted to share, be it online or in person. Um, Eli is depending on, I think, Friday. Um, I don't have the details right in front of me, but he was Eli, Eli Hornstein uh -huh. from AgBioFuse at the PSI building, 1 o'clock. Yeah. And he's an, uh, an old Ag Biofuse student. So um, if you're able, uh, that this information will be in an email or on the GS um, website. So check that out and uh, support him on Friday. Thank you. Any other announcements or updates? No. So before we get started, we're actually going to have an Ag Biofuse student uh, introduce our speaker today. So Eric Butoto, can you come on, come on up here and introduce Dr. Zuck? Hello everyone, welcome to the uh, weekly colloquium. My name is Eric Butoto. I am a third member of the uh, AgBiofuse cohort. Uh, it is my pleasure to introduce our speaker today. Um, I'm gonna make this introduction brief. Um, just looking over her work uh, that she's done, I think I could probably take up all her time to just introduce her. Uh, she's extensive and amazing work. Um, so I'll keep this introduction brief, but I highly encourage you to look up what she has done uh, throughout her career. Our speaker today is Dr. Marlene Suck. Dr. Marlene received her uh, bachelor's in biology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Uh, interestingly, she started out as an English uh, major but switched to biology, thankfully, no <laughs> bias. Then went on to earn her PhD at the University of Michigan. Uh, she's currently the Regents Professor in the Department of Ecology, Evolution and Behavior at the University of Minnesota, and then also the Associate Dean for Faculty in the College of Biological Sciences at the University of Minnesota. Her lab is uh, interested in evolution of sexual signal, mate choice, and the role of uh, parasites in host ecology, evolution, and behavior. And this uh, her work generates a lot of interest from the general audience. So she has written a lot of uh, books and articles, uh, some of them in uh, popular media like the LA Times and uh, Wall Street Journal, uh, and several books. Uh, the latest one is Dancing Cockatoos and the Dead Men Test, How Behavior Involves and Why It Matters. Uh, today, her uh, talk will focus on the science, uh, writing writing about science for public, uh, for the general public. So it's a great honor to have her here and the floor is yours. A lot, that's a really nice introduction. I appreciate it. Um, um, and actually the, the uh, slides, I mean, this is going to, so I was told um, A, to make this pretty short, which it will be, and um, B, that this is a somewhat less formal um, presentation, so I'm happy to do this. Uh, and I also would like to point out that I um, am really grateful to Rob Dunn for having um, asked me to do this. I originally thought that when I said, oh, guess what, I'm going to be giving a talk at UNC, um, it'd be fun to see you, that that would involve him driving over to um, Chapel Hill, and we would have like a 45-minute meeting, and somehow it's transmogrified into me coming over here to give a talk. Um, so I hope you're okay with that. Um, but any, And he also wanted me to talk about writing for the public, because um, I do gather that lots of people are interested in it. So... Um, 
so, uh, you know, you might think about, well, you know, why do people want to do this? And there's lots of reasons why people are interested in it. As Eric said, I, you know, I've been doing it for a long time. Um, partly, I think it's fun to write for a more general audience because um, it's an opportunity to be a little more creative and a little less formulaic than you ordinarily are in your, you know, regular writing up of scientific papers. Um, something that you may not have considered, but that's been a big plus for me about doing it is that you meet a lot of different kinds of people um, and then sort of less selfishly. Um, hopefully you agree with me that, you know, it's important for scientists to talk to people who are not scientists. It kind of fills a need. Um, I, and even if you're not convinced by any of that, it's the case that whether you like it or not, um, you kind of have to do it because often journals will require you to produce a lay summary, which is in effect communicate. It's about it's writing about science for the public. Um, or when you're getting grants from certain agencies, you're required to do something that's a little bit more, uh, a little less specialized and so forth. Um, and potentially, depending on what you work on, you'll get media contact from for what you're doing and someone will want to know um, something that will require you to communicate in a way to the public. Um, and then this last point is something that I'm just going to bring up now and I'll return to a little bit later, which is that a lot of people have no idea about it, but they're positive that they would be really good at it if they tried. And that's where this picture of the airplane comes in. So um, along, so I've been doing this for a long time of, you know, writing stuff for the public and, you know, written stuff for the, for, you know, places like, uh, you know, the LA Times and so forth, and also, uh, you know, a bunch of books. Um, and through that, I've gotten to meet a lot of what I would call sort of real writers, you know, people who that's like kind of what they do for their living. Um, and um, one time, I, and often people are have kind of a funny attitude about people who write for a living. Um, and uh, I was in Australia and I was friends with uh, someone who was one of these sort of real writers, as you might call it. Uh, she uh, worked, uh, she'd written a bunch of books. She'd uh, worked with uh, the, she wrote a column for the biggest newspaper in Australia. She did a bunch of stuff on radio and so forth. And she was telling me that she was at a dinner party and uh, she sat next to a guy who it turned out uh, was an airline pilot and, you know, and, and she, so she, uh, and uh, so we talked about that. And then he said, oh, what do you do? And she said, oh, you know, I, uh, I'm a writer. Um, you know, I write books, um, uh, you know, for the general public. And he said, you know, oh, that's so interesting because that's what I think I'm going to do when I retire is that I'm going to write, you know, books like I'm going to do like what you do. And she, without skipping a beat, said, oh, that is interesting because when I retire, I'm going to fly 747s. <laughs> and, and I love this story in part. I mean, she is kind of a snarky person, but, but, but I love this story in part because I think it conveys something about writing that people think, or it, a misconception about writing, which is that oh, come on, anybody could just knock this stuff out if they sort of had the time. And I get this question a lot that like the only thing standing between other people, and sorry, this is gonna sound a little self-aggrandizing, but, but bear with me, um, that the only thing standing between other people and doing what I do um, in terms of writing for the general public is that somehow they just don't have the time because they're busy with, and this goes unspoken usually, they're busy with more important things. And, you know, I kind of take exception to that, um, partly because, A, I think it's important to do it, and partly because I think doing this stuff is hard, and it's not necessarily something that you could just take up when you retire, like, you know, playing golf. And I mean, even if you did want to do that, then, you know, 
you would have trouble. I mean, like not everybody's good at golf either. So anyway, so part of what I want to talk about is this whole idea about what does it mean to write for the public? What are you doing? What are you trying to do? And how can you do it in ways that, you know, will be successful and whatever for you? And so the first question is, okay, when you're writing about science for the public, is what you're doing just taking the science that we all do and just distilling it down and making it simpler so that you're, you're making something simple. And, and so there's this really famous quote from Albert Einstein that says, you know, like, and, and, and people have often said this to me and often they don't realize that other people like this is not something like Albert Einstein said it, um, that, you know, like you don't really understand something until you can explain it to your grandmother. How, how many of you have ever heard that? You know, like people say that, yeah. Did you know, did you all know that it was from Albert Einstein? Not really, okay. I mean, not that it really matters, but anyway. Um, and so, you know, the whole thing is, okay, you should really be able to explain something in this very simple term. So I hate that quotation. I really like not nothing against Albert Einstein, you know, genius, blah, blah, blah. But um, so first of all, I think it's a weird thing to say because first of all, like why are grandmothers always assumed to be sort of so dimwitted that they can never, pop, you know, like there are lots of people who are grandmothers who are actually scientists and practicing and like, doing all the stuff that we're doing and like, you know, like for all in it, there's like grandmothers in the room. Like, it's not like, I, for heaven's sakes. Also, I do find it sort of sexist because like, why is it always grandmother and it's never grandfather? Um, and I, I find it just generally. And so, so here are some of the images that I, you know, like if you just Google, like explaining science to your grandma, like, you know, these are some of the images that you get. And it's like, I just find it generally condescending. And there's this idea that like, oh, the poor public, they're just not going to be able to understand stuff because we, the mighty scientists, need to like, you know, dumb it down for them. And so one of the first things I want to point out is that writing for the public doesn't mean that you're taking something and translating it from this arcane language into a simple language that the poor lay people can understand. It, that's not what writers for the public do. And even if you are just explaining something in simpler terms to people who may not understand the specialized stuff, that's still like talking about something being dumbing down. And, and people will often use that for themselves. Like they'll say, oh, can you just dumb this down for me? And I, I really do think it's condescending. It's, it's like acting like regular people, you know, aren't going to be able to understand something that other regular people do. And another reason that I don't like that view of it is that a lot of science writing, and I'd like to think that my own is included in this, it's not just like, I'm not just a conduit. I'm not just taking a scientific paper and then spitting it out into words with fewer syllables in them. I think a lot of science writing for the public has you know, original ideas in it. It's got scholarship. It's got interpretation that you won't find other places. So I think that dumbing down is not really, you know, the way to look at it. And this, uh, this image comes from a really interesting website um, by someone who actually works on medical and health uh, sciences communication, and he is also opposed to the dumbing down thing. Okay, but now we're going to think about ways that, so, so even if we do think, all right, but some of it obviously is making stuff simpler because we all know that the science we do is you know, it does have a lot of complicated stuff in it. It is hard for people to understand who are in different um, 
uh, who are in different uh, fields and so on and so forth. And so I want to just spend a minute um, going over something that probably some of you at least are familiar with, which is the uh, Upgoer 5. Have, how, how many of you have heard of this? Oh, this is interesting. Just a few of you. I think it went through a big phase in popularity maybe five or so years ago, and now I think it's fading out somewhat. So um, this is a, a way of... Um, of thinking about communication that was originated from the author of XKCD Comics, Randall Monroe, who, if, you, if you've not looked at XKCD Comics, you should, because they're funny. Um, and he writes a lot of stuff about, you know, comics about science and scientists, and they're very, they're cute. They're with stick figures and so forth. Anyway, so what he started doing a number of years ago is to develop, is to think about how to explain science using the thousand, or as he puts it, 10 hundred, and I'll tell you why that is in a second, uh, most common words in English to explain complicated things. The reason he says 10 hundred instead of a thousand is that the word 1000 is not one of the 1000 most commonly used words in English. Um, and so it's called Upgoer 5 because he originally used this as a way to talk about the Saturn V rocket. Um, and so this is the original, I know you can't see any of this, but this is the original cartoon, and I'll show you a blow up of it in a second. And so what it does is it says that this is the U.S. space team's Upgoer 5, the only flying space car that's taken anyone to another world, explained using only the 10 hundred words people use the most often. And so, for example, and so every part of the rocket is explained um, so this part says that it's stuff to burn to make the box with the people in it escape really fast. Um, this says place where fire comes out to help team escape. Um, thing to help people escape really fast if there's a problem and everything is on fire so they decide not to go to space. Um, and so, you know, there's a whole thing like that. Um, there's actually a text editor. I thought briefly about trying to, to organize it so we could all use it, but I'm, I'm not going to bother now because I, if you're really interested, we can try and set this up interactively later. Um, I use this in a class that I teach, um, and it is quite interesting. And what happens is that there's a text editor, and here's the website. So if you want to like either photograph the screen or just write down the, the, uh, the site, um, it's, or you just look up uh, Upgoer 5 text editor, you will find it. Um, and so what you can do is you can type in like things and see whether, the, and it'll correct you and it'll say, nope, that's not one of the right words. Nope, that's not one of the right words. Nope. The, so Fred, look at that. You've, have you used this? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, I'll go through, try to describe our own research. Well, that leads very well into um, what I was gonna talk about next, which is, so here's a couple of definitions of evolution that uh, people have come up with doing this. The first one is from a, um, a scientific uh, American, um, uh, scientific American article uh, that was talking about using Upgoer 5. And so evolution is defined as all the animals and green things we see in the world have all been made by the same fixed easy steps acting all around us. These easy steps taken in the largest sense, being growing and having babies, being like your parents, but not exactly like them and being able to avoid dying for as long as possible, which, you know, is not a bad, like, I mean, it's, it's not bad. Um, the second one is, uh, so I used it as an exercise. We had like a, a sort of grad, graduate student orientation up at Itasca uh, Biological Station um, in northern Minnesota a few weeks ago. And one of the things that I have the students do is form groups, and I explain all about Upgoer 5, and they, um, 
So our department and our grad program is ecology, evolution, and behavior. And I said, okay, so everybody come up with a definition of ecology, a definition of evolution, and a definition of behavior using the you know thousand most commonly used words. And so one of the evolution ones is um, how living things change and make different living things over long and short time blocks, which I, in some ways, I kind of like better than the the one from Scientific American. Um, and then. Uh, Finally, so one of my students, Archer Thadi, um, who is working on lava crickets, um, which live, as you might imagine, on lava. Um, so she's describing her research. Um, so just like what Fred was saying. Uh, so these are crickets that are among the first um, uh, things that appear, first living things that appear on lava after it cools after an eruption. So when the ground makes more ground, which is really hot, it is red and can kill things. Um, there are six-legged animals which can't fly that live there when the hot ground cools down. We don't know how they got there and how they and their children live there for long times. There's few other living things around, so what are the six-legged thing? What are the six-legged animals eating there? Um, which is indeed one of the because it's like seriously barren, like it's amazing. Um, the problem when they eat is that they do not know how to stop eating sometimes, but we don't know what makes them do that. Also, they don't make noise um, because they're wingless um, and so they can't call like other crickets. Um, but they have long scent sticks on their head. Maybe they use these to find each other. And I love the word scent sticks for antenna. I thought that, I think like we should all start talking about scent sticks instead of antennae. Anyway, okay, so, so that's just an example. And I've used this a bunch in teaching and it is an interesting way to think about how one, you know, like exactly how simple you can make stuff and still talk about it. But at the same time, okay, what is this really showing us? Certainly a lot of people have pointed out that although it's kind of a gimmick, you know, it, it really is just that. And it's super restrictive. Carl Zimmer, who probably a lot of you know of or know, is uh, a science writer. And um, he says that an average six-year-old has a vocabulary of 16,000 words. An adult's vocabulary is 60,000 words. So up or five is useful if you're going to talk to preschoolers. For an adult, uh, for an audience that's any older, you know, even second grade, I don't see how it can help. Um, and, you know, it's kind of quirky about what words are commonly used and what aren't. So, for instance, the word plant isn't in there, which is why green things was was in that that other one. So. So one of the things I think that would be worth, you know, talking about, you know, in the sort of more discussion -y part of this is like how much simplification is too much, how much simplification is good and how much simplification you should sort of strive for. All right, so, and, and I, I won't do that now because I do wanna like make sure that I finish with enough time, but, but so, so bookmark in your head, talking about Upgoer 5 as a thing to do. And if, you know, or if you have other thoughts on it, um, I'd, be, I'd be happy to hear them. <clears throat> so kind of more broadly thinking about writing, not even just for the public, but writing more generally is that, um, I think, and this is something that I originally was made to think about from uh, Steve Hurd, who's an ecologist at the University of New Brunswick, is that really, if someone asks, like, I'm sure you all have answers. If somebody says, what do you do? You have an answer to that. You know what? You could really easily say that what you do is you're a writer. Because if you really think about what you actually spend most of your time doing and what your actual products are for what you do, it's written. Everybody has to be a writer. And that's true whether you, you know, work in industry, whether you are an academic, whether you're primarily teaching, whether you're also doing research, you're doing a lot of writing. 
And so Steve Hurd um, both uh, publishes books for the general public, um, the one on um, Charles Darwin's Barnacle and David Bowie's Spider. He's interested in how scientific names came about, and that's a very cool book. Um, he has a blog called Scientist Sees Squirrel, which I really like a lot. And he's written a book, which I'm currently using for a writing class that for graduate students that I'm teaching now called The Scientist's Guide to Writing. And one of the things he likes to do is sort of do these, um, they're not polls because he's just doing them of himself, but uh, well, sometimes they do, he does polls. Um, and actually, yeah, sorry. So this one, this one's one he did on Twitter where he said, okay, how much of your time do you think you spend writing? So I actually, before I showed you this, I should have, you know, if, if you want to just, you know, there will not be a test, but like, just think, for, I'm, I'm going to pause for a moment. Like if someone asked you like, what percentage of your time do you spend writing? What do you think you would say? Actually, it would be if you have something to write down, go, go ahead and write it down and we can share it. We can share later, but like there won't be a time. All right. Well, what he found in his informal Twitter poll um, is that, you know, and admittedly, this is how much people, time people say they're spending writing. Who knows if this is really what they're writing? Um, that, you know, a fair number of people say they're writing like more than 50 percent of their time. And certainly between 25 and 50 percent to more than 50 percent is by far the biggest group there is. So we really spend a lot of time writing. And here's a typical year of writing for Steve. Um, he says he writes, you know, or is contributing to about four journal papers, two grant proposals, 24 peer reviews, which is a lot of peer reviews. That's more peer reviews than I do. Um, uh, a technical report, like for an agency, um, administrative documents where, you know, you're writing something for a committee you're on or a report to the central administration. Um, and he also does blog posts, which are about a thousand words each, which is a total of 132,000 words. Or, as you know, he puts it, his output is between you know Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban and Harry Potter and the um, Half Blood Prince. You know, because Half Blood Prince is longer. Um, but anyway, you know, that's kind of about where he is, which is a lot to get done in a year. So, okay, well, how do we do all of this? And again, I'm going to come back to the writing for the public in a second, but I think it's helpful to think about the fact that you're a writer anyway. So, thinking about how you write is instructive and useful and something that you should be doing because that's what you're going to spend most of your time on. And certainly, as I've already argued, nearly everybody has to write for the public to some extent. So thinking about how you do it is, I think, worthwhile. And there's two kinds of how, and I'm going to cover them both briefly, and I think that'll, that'll get me done in, in pretty much the requisite amount of time. And the first one is how you get words on the page when you've got ideas in your head. And the second one is, okay, but practically speaking, how do you find outlets if you want to write specifically for the public? Because the first one is, is more like broad, you know, thinking about it. And this is, you know, what's uh, the, the comp people call this writing as process. You know, if you ever take, you know, English comp, this is what they call it. There are lots of people who are interested in it. Um, there's like lots of graphics. Again, I just did a little quick thing on Google. And um, uh, so, um, you know, and some of them think there's five steps and some of them think there's three steps and some of them think there's God knows how many steps there are in here. And uh, one of the, the D.A.R.E. thing, I, I thought that was like an anti-drug program. So like, I don't know what's going on with that. Um, but anyway, so lots of people have lots of ideas about how you do this. Um, all of them feel like, okay, I'm going to give you a formula. And they all assume that you can just sit down and write. But 
writing, and again, this is true for whether you are writing for the public or not. And I think sometimes people feel like one of them is easier than the other. And I don't think so. I think writing is just always hard and it's hard for everybody. And so I just showed you like all those millions of, you know, things you can do. And some of them use the word like simple steps to, you know, whatever. Um, there's a lot of resources out there on how to not be as anxious about writing. And so Dirty Little Secret, everybody has a lot of anxiety about writing, including professional writers, including people who are like Stephen King has anxiety about writing. And I know that because I read his book uh, about writing um, and you know so on and so forth. And my moral of the story, despite all of those colorful graphics with the arrows and the circles and the whatnot, is that different things work for different people, which is kind of boring, but seems to be true. Um, this book, Bird by Bird, um, I don't know if any of you have ever seen it by Anne Lamott, who is a writer. Um, uh, she talks about the title comes from how um, her son had to do, I think it was her son, had to do an assignment for class about the birds of like wherever it was they were living. And um, and he said, like, Mom, I just don't understand how I'm just going to how like, how am I going to do this? And she said, well, you just need to do it bird by bird. Um, and so, you know, to some extent, you can apply that to um, to, you know, any writing project. And so I'm just going to briefly go through this. And Jen and I were talking on the way here about like she's in a writing group and like a Zoom, you know, writing group. Some of you may use writing groups. Um, so I'm going to throw this out there. And again, we can talk about this. And I'm really curious to hear everybody's like, what do you think works? Because I'm always interested to hear how that works. Um, some people like having time limits, like I'm going to always write for half an hour a day. I'm going to write for two hours a day. I'm going to do whatever. Some people, and that's me, actually like setting word limits. So when I'm working on a book, I generally, I don't like doing time limits. And I can explain more why that is later. Um, I'll, I'd rather set a word limit. Um, some people like writing in groups. So you can often find, and I, I guess I know I've just, I've just found out that you can find that here, um, where you can be either in person or on Zoom with other people. Um, uh, there's and there's lots of books on it. So writing with power is a very old book that I love. Um, and if you're looking for something that you want to want to use, um, uh, he's talking mostly about writing um, in a very broad sense. He's certainly not talking about science writing, but um, he uses a technique called free writing, which is you know kind of exactly what it sounds like. Um, so if you're interested, that's a, a, that's one I personally recommend. But there's lots of them out there. I just found this one. Um, just because the title or the subtitle kind of cracked me up. So it's the power of writing it down. And you probably can't read the subtitle from where you are, but it's a simple habit to unlock your brain and reimagine your life. And I just thought, whoa, like if, if that was actually, you know, it, it, it's almost like the people that sell like vitamins or, you know, like something like, I mean, come on. Like if there was a simple habit that would unlock your brain and reimagine, like, wouldn't we all be doing it? You know, like this, anyway, that just struck me as a really odd title, but, but on the other hand, I have not read, I've not read the book. So maybe it's awesome. And you know, like it would change my life. Um, so what doesn't work in my opinion, and again, this is broadly for both writing, but it particularly applies to writing for the public because there, I think people think of it as it somehow seems, and I did say, like, it's a little bit more creative. You're not following the same kind of formula. Um, so people who tell me that they can only write when they're kind of in the zone or they can only write um, when they have at least X hours and it has to be uninterrupted and they can't write because their kids keep, you know, coming in the room or, you know, this happens or that happens. And, you know, if, the, if you're a professional in our field, um, you know, you have to teach, you have to go to meetings, students are knocking on your door, like stuff is happening. Um, 
insisting on that will, it just won't work. I mean, I can tell you that right now. So if you're one of those people where this is the only way you can write, step away from your career because it's not going to happen. I mean, it just won't. And rather than getting frustrated about why don't I have like X hours of time to write and, or, or they stop it. They say, Oh, I'm just going to set aside like during the summer, I'm going to have a month where I'm going to do nothing but write all day, every day. It just, it doesn't work. People don't work like that. It won't happen. So think about some of this other stuff. I'm not going to give you a formula because I don't think the formulas really work very well. All right. Um, I am actually going to skip over. Well, all right. I'll, I'll tell you something really simple. So a lot of people have myths about writing for the public in particular, um, which is, again, this business of like, you can't write for the public unless you sensationalize stuff or you dumb it down. Um, that's not true. Um, in fact, uh, you know, most journalists want to do things so they get the story right, but they need to get their story done. Um, and so they want to get it sold, but, you know, you can work with them. Uh, the other thing is thinking that the only way you can start writing for the public is by knowing people in the business, that it's all like through contacts. And that's not true either. Um, it is true that I've gotten a lot of help from professional science writers, but that's mostly because I've said, hey, um, I have this question. Can you help me? And they will. They'll totally help you. Like they'll help anybody. Um, all right. So now just a final two things on how on some ideas that if, if you are interested in writing for the public, just some ways to get started without saying I'm going to write like a book that's as long as one of the Harry Potter books. Um, the first thing I always recommend to people is to think about writing book reviews. I love book reviews. Journals, most academic journals will publish reviews of books that are of interest in the field. When you write them, you do not write them like a manuscript review. You write them like you're telling somebody who's asked, should I read this book? What's it about? And that's what you're answering. You're not going through like, well, here's something wrong with it. And here's something wrong with it. But here was something I liked. That's not helpful. The audience wants to know, like, should I read this book? And writing a book review, they're short. Plus, you get a free book if you're interested in getting a free book. Um, is a really nice way to sort of exercise those muscles. Uh, I mean, don't do like science or nature because they'll usually solicit them. But but most journals that you read will have a book or a lot of journals that you read will have a book review section. So I think that's a great way to get started. The other way to get started is by doing op-ed contributions. I've had lots of students who've done this for um, I mean, again, don't start with The New York Times or The Wall Street Journal because they usually have very um, uh, specific ideas about what they want. And they get thousands and thousands of submissions a day. But there's, you know, if you go online and for like a local paper and you say, how do I do an op-ed? They'll explain it to you. They're short. They're like 700 to 800 words. And you're using your expertise and you have expertise because you totally have expertise to make a point about something that's of interest to a lot of people. Don't pick something really big that has been going on forever. Like right now, don't write a thing about like COVID denialism or about climate change or, you know, something that people are, have heard about ad infinitum. But um, I just actually I have one. I should check and see if they've answered it. So I I, I, I no longer do. I used to have an editor at the L.A. Times that, that I would work with. And um, I wrote. Um, I wrote an op-ed uh, a while ago, uh, we had it in time for Father's Day, in which I was pointing out that um, the, uh, there's a commonly held misconception that uh, about 10% uh, or even more of kids have misassigned paternity, you know, like the, that they think their biological dad is someone that, that isn't their biological dad. 
that number is completely wrong. And all the, you know, information that we have suggests that the real number is way, 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 way smaller. And I had talked to a population geneticist and, you know, I'd gotten intrigued by this and then I got intrigued by like, so why do people think it is, et cetera, et cetera. Um, anyway, uh, so, um, I wrote not bad about it because, you know, and we hooked it to Father's Day, which is probably a little lame. But um, but anyway, it was the sort of thing that seemed like a point that people were interested in because you're always seeing stuff about like, you know, on all the weird talk shows, you know, that somebody's coming up and confessing that, no, I had an affair when you're you were, you know, uh, before you were born and, you know, like blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so, you know, people are kind of interested in that. So so it's something that people are interested in. It's interesting to me because I'm interested in the way people think about things like mating systems and mate choice. And so, so, you know, it's actually not whatever, but it worked, they published it. And so there's really no, re you know, you know, all kinds of things that people would be interested in. And I think of that as a really cool way to get started doing stuff without writing a whole friggin' book. Okay, there, just about 30 minutes. Um, I'm gonna stop with this stuff. Yeah, and so I, I, I actually was just gonna, Again, if we don't have enough stuff to talk about or if anybody is curious about this, I think that these are three things that I hear a lot from people, and I think it's fun to talk about them and think about all of them. So um, that's it for me. Uh, thank you very much. I'm looking forward to your questions. Okay, um, so we'll get started. I'll, I'll help moderate uh, the questions. Just a reminder for everyone online, we really encourage you to participate as well. We have quite a few people online today. So if you would like me to read your question, type it in the chat and I'll, I'll read it. If um, you would like to ask your question directly to Marlene, uh, use the raise your hand function at the bottom of your screen. You actually raise your hand. Um, but we'll start here in the room. Maybe a student wants to lead off questions. Okay, Alexis. Uh, sure. Yes, I have a question and um, a comment. My question is, is it possible for us to view the slides that you skipped over somewhere? <laughs> 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 it's interesting. Sure. Um, but like I said, I was I was very firmly told to only go to, to only go for 30 minutes. So so uh, we'll see. Because some of that's about the difference between writing a book for a university press and writing a book for commercial press, which in part, I, I, I didn't know how many faculty members I would have who were realistically probably more likely to be interested in that distinction because I figured the rest of you aren't. Um, but I'm happy to talk about that in a nutshell if you want. Okay, perfect. Um, and then a quick comment was um, the point that you brought up earlier about not insisting on waiting for these long chunks of un uninterrupted time to work, I thought was great advice because that's something that I personally struggle with. And if anyone else has the same problem <laughs> where you feel like you're a distractible person, um, my my, my feeling there was always like, oh, if I only have half an hour or whatever to work on something, then I'm going to be distracted for that entire half hour and nothing will get done. Um, but what I do is I sort of force myself to be distracted for the first five minutes or so, and then that feeling goes away and I can actually work. So that's my comment. Okay, we have a question online from Skylar Hopkins. Um, they say, thanks, Marlene. Can you tell us more about why you use word targets instead of time targets when you're writing? Do you do that for books and journal papers, or do you switch approaches depending on what you're writing? Sure. Um, so I, um, I use uh, word targets in part because I feel like for me, it's Partly related to what Alexis was that was that training? Uh, yes, uh, partly in, in similar to what Alexis said. That I feel like if I do time targets, it makes me anxious because then 
I look at the time passing and I feel like I haven't accomplished anything. Whereas if I have word targets, then it doesn't matter how long it takes me. I'm just going to get this amount done. Um, and the usual target when I'm writing, and it is usually for writing a book, for writing a paper, I'll do it more by section. So I'll like, I want to get the introduction done or I want to get the blah, blah, blah done. Um, so I won't do by word. But for when I'm writing a book, I usually do a thousand words a day. Um, and a thousand words turns out to be manageable for me. Um, it's, I then found out actually from my friend, the one who made the joke to the pilot, um, uh, uh, that, uh, she does that too. And I didn't, I had no idea. Um, and so a thousand words a day is actually pretty typical for people who are writers and who, uh, you know, not novelists, but people who are doing like, you know, the kind of writing that we're doing. Um, and so that way I don't have to think, Oh, you know, well, sure. I've been sitting here for a half an hour or an hour or whatever, but I haven't really done anything. Whereas if I can knock out a thousand words in an hour and a half, which sometimes I can't, you know, depending on how prepared I am, sometimes I can, then all right, I'm done. It doesn't matter. And so I like that better. And the other thing that the word limit does and the time limit doesn't do is that if you stop, and I like, I mean, stop when you're at a thousand words, not at least a thousand words, a thousand words, because what that means is that you almost always stop in the middle of something. And when you stop in the middle of something, I mean, you have to you know, have in your mind what's going to come next. But if you stop in the middle of something, you can pick it up really quick next time. Whereas if you write until you're like, OK, I've written and now I'm just exhausted. And then you come back the next day. It's like, oh, God, I've got to roll that boulder up the hill again. And and so it it's a little trick, I think, to do the word thing, because then you finish. You're in the middle of something. I mean, like I usually don't stop mid sentence, but but, you know, it really that that. For both of those reasons, it, it removes my anxiety about like I'm not getting enough done because I know how much I have to get done. It's not in question. And it also helps with the starting back up again and you don't burn yourself out. Um, Amanda, and then how is your organization or I guess your strategy for writing different when you're writing a book versus a paper? You were talking about maybe writing in sections, but also like just the creative process of figuring out where, what the overall structure is going to look like. How is that different when you get to a book level? So for books, um, well, this does get to sort of some of the stuff about the book, writing a book, but um, so when you're writing a book, like all the ones that I've done, you have sort of an overall point. Like, you know, it's not, it's different than a paper because with a paper, you're reporting on the results of whatever study you did, whether it's theoretical or, you know, you did a lab study or a field study or what have you. And there's a pre-existing framework for that. You have to have an introduction that puts why, you know, why did you do what you're doing? Um, and I'm teaching scientific writing, like I said, and, and, and actually I really do recommend Steve Hurt's book. I'm, I'm not getting any like benefit from this. I just think he's good. Um, and, uh, but you know, he talks about like, okay, how do you structure your introduction? There's a formula for doing that. Um, and also the other thing that like words to live by is one idea, one paragraph don't like, and, and like, don't, put more than one idea in one paragraph. If everybody did that, like everybody's life as a reader would be much easier. Um, but anyway, uh, and for a book, you can't do that because, I mean, you do have one idea, one paragraph, always one idea, one paragraph. Um, but um, for a book, you have an overarching point you're trying to make that's different than like, like you're not reporting on something. And for a book, you don't just have, I mean, unless you're writing, 
you could write a scholarly book where, you know, which wouldn't be for the public, where it would be like, I don't know, the the freshwater fishes of, you know, Peru or something in which you do need to organize it and you need to explain like, okay, so here's the deal about the freshwater fishes, but no one would pick up that book in Barnes and Noble or like probably like, because unless you work on freshwater fishes or maybe you work on saltwater fishes and then you want to know about freshwater fish, but anyway, you know, you, you probably wouldn't do that. And so for a book, you have to set it up essentially like, like you would a novel with a narrative arc. So you have like, okay, I'm introducing the problem. I'm saying like, here is why we want to understand what's going on with this. And so um, if, well, I, I guess you're going to hear my talk, um, you know, in a couple of hours um, uh, back at UNC that, that, you know, it's a book talk where I'm giving you like a little taste of like, okay, here's the problem. And in that book, the problem is that I think that we think about, the way behavior evolves all wrong. Um, and so here's how I think it's more helpful to think about the way behavior evolves. And that's really what the book is about. And, and to be honest, it took me a while to figure out that that was what the book was about. Cause I knew what I wanted to write about, but I didn't really have it like distilled like that. Um, uh, anyway, so that's one of the ways that it differs. So you do have a, you know, and that's one of the reasons why you wouldn't like just, and, and reading other people's books were super helps. So Jill, then we'll have an online, then we'll go to you. Okay. Yeah, it's still a little bit off what you were just saying, but I'm curious if you have a process for really making your overarching idea or your main topic tangible to yourself when you're sitting down to write a book. So do you have a process for making it feel like you can wrap it up, you know, in your hands or paint a picture of it? Like, do you make an outline? What is your... Oh, that's so interesting. I've never thought, I, I never thought about this first. That's so, t tell me more, like, 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 cause clearly you thought about it. T tell me more. Well, I love to go down rabbit holes uh -huh. whenever I start writing or have an idea. I'm probably one of those people that you spoke about who thinks they could be really good at it if they just had time. And I now see my seven-year-old doing the same thing. She started 10 novels in the last month. And she has a great start and then nothing. And I encourage her to go back to it. She just pretends she didn't care. <laughs> well, I think when you're her age, that this is totally forgivable. You know, like, like I, you know. Yeah, and I have a Dropbox. Like, that's how old it is. Full of things I've started. Can't finish because I just can't get them to fit in a basket or in my hands. Huh, I can only see yeah. them in these long trails that go all over. So I'm curious if when you have a great idea for a book, uh, cold water or freshwater fishes in Peru, <laughs> how do you contain it yeah. and make sure at the same time you say everything that's going to be interesting and important about that topic? I, I mean, I, partly it's a great question that, you know, like I'm going to give the, the what is it that the, the answer to everything is it's complicated and it depends, right? You know, that's what you say about everything. Because um, it is, and it does. Um, but I do have an outline. I don't use any of the, part of that I was intrigued by the like, could you put your hand around it? Because I don't, I've never used that metaphor, but it's an interesting one. Um, and I do use outlines pretty rigorously. Um, the other thing that helps is having good editors. And one of the fun things about writing for the public is that you get people to work with who know about writing, duh, you know, like they know about what you're trying to do. One of the fun, most fun things about um, writing op-eds is that you get an editor who will literally go through every sentence that you write and say, well, but this seems like it's a little different than this thing that you set up here. And 
wait, this word, you know, so they're doing both the style and that, and, and doing that in a microcosm helps you do it a little bit more in a, in a macrocosm. So actually one of the things, if you're having trouble, so write something short, have one idea, write something short. I love writing stuff that's short. It amazes me sometimes that I've written whole books. You just do it like, well, I mean, like she says, bird by bird, but, but, you know, so yeah, I do have an outline for what I want to do. I, you know, you start thinking, cause you have to, to have a book proposal and to, you know, get anyone to buy your book and, you know, so forth. So you do, I do, but I do, I do rely on outlines and I mean like outlines as in like Roman numerals and letters and little letters and little numbers and the whole thing, um, like outline outlines. But I will also do that chapter by chapter because everything in life gets broken down into smaller pieces, right? I mean, everything you do gets broken down into smaller pieces. It's like what they tell you, like, don't ever have on your list of things to do, like finish book or like, or finish dissertation or get tenure or like, I don't know, whatever else, you know, it's like anything else you have to break it, break it down enough. But, but I do think there's a lot. And there's also, I think you have to be upfront with yourself about the anxiety because everybody's anxious about it. Like everybody has a lot of weird emotional stuff about writing. And I feel like a lot of, that's why I like Steve's book because a lot of the other books I've used for scientific writing make it seem like your only problem is you can't figure out what goes in the methods section. And it's like, if that was people's only problem, we'd all be like way more prolific than we are. Right. That's not people's only problem. And so figuring out how to like deal with yourself. I have a, I have a friend um, at Minnesota who's a poet. Uh, she's actually the chair of the English department now. Um, and also in the creative writing program, she said, and so I've been asking her like about her, cause you know, that seems to me like, Oh my God, like, how can you like, how do you even know when you have written a poem? Like I'm oh, like that just seems inconceivable to me. And she says she she does do the like two hours or so, six thirty, eight thirty in the morning, pretty much every morning. And she says what she does is just sort of fool herself and telling herself that she's not really writing a poem. She's just writing down stuff that she found interesting, or she's just like jotting down some something that happened that she liked, or something she read that she had a thought about. And she says she almost feels like she's sneaking up on herself. Because what will happen is after she's got, you know, that time just doodling around, she'll realize that it's kind of taken shape and she wants to pursue it as a poem, which I thought was super interesting. And it's not the way I write, but it was really fun to, to hear about that. Okay, we have a question on Zoom from Anna Stepanova. She says, no single topic appeals to everyone. How do you select your target audience? What comes first when you're deciding to write about something, the topic or the audience? In other words, do you prefer to adapt your choice of topics to a specific audience, the audience comes first, or do you pick a specific topic and then think who might be interested in hearing about it? This is the topic center. Huh. I guess uh, what, it, this is making me feel really self-centered because I just feel like everybody should be interested in the things that I'm interested in. <laughs> or at least, you know, like that's, that is interesting. I've never thought about that. Um, Cause I, you know, all the books that I've picked are things like, like, why is everyone not interested in this? Um, and I, so I, so yeah, I guess I, I guess I assume that everybody's going to be interested in it, which, you know, you can see how well my books have sold is probably not a really great assumption, but, but I, you know, yeah, I've never thought about the audience, although I will say so for this, this recent book, um, the Dancing Cockatoos book. Um, so I was originally playing with the idea of using, um, domestic animals as a way to understand, to think about how uh, behavior evolves, because I think, I do think people have funny ideas about the way behavior as opposed to other kinds of traits evolve. And uh, so um, 
I was going to talk. So I was starting to read a bunch of stuff about dogs because people are really interested in how dogs evolved and dog behavior and so on and so forth. Um, and, uh, um, and so I was starting to talk about this with my agent and, uh, and she said, this all sounds fine, Marlene, but just don't piss off the dog people because she said the dog people like write, a, read a lot of books and they buy a lot of books and just, just don't say anything like that would piss off the dog people. So it's like, okay. So, so that is one case in which I, which I hope I have not. I mean, I do have a chapter about dogs in the book. Um, and you know, I like, I like dogs fine. Like, don't get me wrong, but like, I do feel like people have a lot of weird ideas about dogs. And also everybody thinks their dog is freaking genius. Um, and I'm, you know, anyway, we can talk more. Hey, um, Somebody back here. Got a question. And then we'll go to Brian. Sorry, I'm missing your talk. I'm so glad I caught most of it. Um, on the Zoom, I was going to say um, narrative structure. When it comes to how you do your narrative structure, I don't know if you're familiar with Randy Olson. Uh, did I read Mel at all? Yeah, he yeah. uses the and but therefore. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I was wondering because my time with UCS, um, they do a lot of that kind of stuff when it comes to telling stories. Storytelling is so big part right. of our science exactly, work. Exactly. Yeah. And I was going to ask you maybe you could talk a little bit about. ABT in your own writing. So I use that structure way more for doing scientific writing than I do for um, for writing a book like this because um, the so is, it, is every does everybody know what he's talking about then? But there so so and I think it does work really well for a scientific paper. And I, I've used this with my students, and they diligently write it down. And then it just, I don't know if the paper comes out any better because of it, but they do diligently write it down. Um, so the idea is that you know when you're starting out, particularly in an introduction, I mean what you're doing in a scientific paper is you're saying, okay, here's this stuff that we already know, and we already know this and this and this. But here's something that we don't really know or that we don't understand or that, you know, is a real problem for us. So therefore, what I'm going to do is solve this for you in some way. And here's what, you know, what the paper is. And that really is, you know, like everybody's scientific paper. Um, and so, yeah, I do like that structure. It's a little harder to apply for a book because sometimes you know, sometimes I feel like, like, although the problem is big, my suggestion for a solution can be sort of small. And I've, I often, it's sort of like when I teach animal behavior, I always feel like when I, um, that if I had one thing that, that I felt like the students should get out of it, the one thing is that not everything is like people. Um, because I feel like that's often everybody's go-to with animals is that everything's like a little person. And, um, they're not. And, you know, so they're not like each other. They're not like people. And so that's not so much of a therefore because you end up with, you know, but, but yes, no, I love that framework. Um, and I do think it is helpful. And the, the storytelling thing is interesting. The only thing, and I've always wondered if he has this issue too, is that sometimes when I talk about storytelling in this context of writing, students will think that, oh, they're telling a story in the sense that they have these data that, that they know that they need to convey and they're dropping a story kind of on top of it, or they're like embellishing the, the data with the story. And that's not what, what that, what that is. The point is you, you already have a story in the sense that you have something you want to talk about. And this, the word story can often have kind of a disparaging, like it almost sounds like you're just making crap up. Right. And, and that's not what this means at all. So, so I, or, or sometimes people will say, oh, you're saying I need to put a different spin on it. And it's like, no, spin makes it seem like you're, you've got something that's, that's, that's fixed and you're just, you know, like, no, you need to decide what does your stuff mean? Like, what is, that's not a spin. That's what it means. So does that make sense to you? No, it makes a lot of sense to me. 
question to ask um, Dr. Olson, for sure. Like, it's one of those things I think about also. So, you know, you're not telling people to be manipulative. You're just pointing out that, and, and also, and this actually goes goes back to um, to your question, is that I, for me, writing is also helps me think about stuff, which is part of what I was saying at the very beginning, that writing for the public is not, you're not just like a translation app. You're, you're actually thinking about the problem by writing about it. And sometimes if I peter out, it's because I don't really know what I think. And so that kind of helps. Okay, um, Bradley has his hand raised. Would you like to unmute and ask your question? Sure, yeah, thanks Marlene for this great talk. Uh, my question was sort of about your career generally. I know in some academic departments, uh, you know, science communication is is valued, and in some uh, instances, it, it might not be so much. And so, I wonder for you how your interest in in science writing and science communication is manifested in terms of uh, whether it's been uh, cases in which it's been detrimental or helpful to your career. Yeah, thanks. And that's kind of you know bullet point number two on my my three questions for discussion, which I guess we mostly don't really need since um, you guys have all these these good comments. But um, so the first thing is that I think being a practicing scientist, so like I have not given up my day job and being a practicing scientist gives me a really different perspective in writing for the public than someone who's a professional science writer, which is not to say that people who are professional science writers aren't accomplished, that they don't understand complex ideas, that they don't, but, but it's just a different thing. And so I feel like I've been careful to, you know, sort of cling to that and to say like, look, my perspective is based on what I actually know from actually doing science um, and not from, you know, interviewing people. I mean, I do interview people sometimes, or at least I ask them questions. Um, but, and so I think being able to not give up your day job um, has helped because it informs what I write in a really different way. Um, in terms of my own career, uh, I did have tenure when my first book came out, but I'd already been doing a lot of writing, you know, anyway. So I didn't, that was not a conscious decision. Um, and uh, honestly, I don't think it's that big a deal. Um, lots of people are, you know, especially if you run a, a lab where there's lots of people doing different stuff, it's, it's not that hard um, to, uh, to sort of combine it with other things. I'm sure I would have been way more productive um, as a writer if I had given up my day job, but I didn't want to give up my day job. So, you know, there you are. Um, but, uh, you know, and it is interesting to think about. I, I, I really, I, I actually think that it's interesting. I, it, this feeds into this business of not being a translation app that I, I do get a little annoyed with people who feel like, oh, in addition to like doing everything that I do, you also somehow find the time to like, press play and just translate what other people have done for the general public. And I feel like what I do, it is scholarly. And so the, all of my books, I feel like are scholarly outputs, um, you know, the degree to which actually, yeah, that's right. In fact, I know my first book did come out before I got tenure, I think. And, and I, I, I was able to, you know, convince people that it, it constituted part of my scholarly output. I don't know what would have happened if I hadn't also had like regular papers and a regular, you know, lab and everything else going. But, but I, I think this idea that science, you know, like I'm not saying, oh, here, I'm going to explain what COVID is to a high school class, that there's lots of different kinds of stuff that people do. And what I'm doing, I think, is 
you know, I think it's intellectual. I think it's participating in the way people think about the way the world works. I have my own perspective on the way the world works. Um, and like I said, that kind of gets back to the really why isn't everybody interested in what I do? Um, because I feel like they should be. Uh, but, you know, and I feel like everybody's, you know, all of this stuff is is of really broad interest. Like, you know, my first book is basically, you know, it's it was on, you know, what we can and can't learn about sex from animals. Like, who isn't interested in that for heaven's sakes, you know? <laughs> Okay, I think the last question will be um, one from Jean Ristano online. And um, she says, I have been working on a historical book on the Irish famine pathogen mm. for a number of years and find myself continuing to do more documentary research and collecting material for the book rather than writing it. I've written many short pieces from the material gathering for the book for press, but procrastination has been a huge problem because I always feel like I need more material to get the history correct. Any thoughts or suggestions? Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, other, other than I hear you, um, I, you know, yeah, but I mean, that's something, that's a work problem. Not like, I think what actually helps is that that's not a writing problem. That's a work problem. And we all have work problems because everybody has a hard time working because it's hard. I mean, otherwise I wouldn't call it work, right? Um, but, and so no, I don't have anything simple for that. I think it's more a matter of, you know, what do you need to make your point? If you think about the way other people who write books do it, they don't write a comprehensive, like this is everything that anyone would ever need. It's like your point. What point do you want to make about the Irish famine, which seems FYI, like a super, like I would just, as a, an interviewer told me a long time ago, I would read the hell out of that. That just sounds like fabulous. I would totally read that. Um, I want to be reading it right now. Um, and, and I think that it, you need to make it clear that you're not writing like the freshwater fishes of wherever it is, because then you can stop when you finished with the fishes. When you're writing a book like this, your point, like, what is your point? Your point could be that um, the famine was like, you know, had different effects than had previously been thought. So then you need to make that point. Or your point could be that, you know, the pathogen is still potentially going to recur and you're going to, I'm making this up, obviously, um, you know, and so we need to, you know, do this. Or your point could be that the, the famine had effects on, you know, something that, you know, had not been whatever. And so I think centering it around a point that you want to make and ensuring that that point is solidly held up is way better than saying, I'm just doing a whole comprehensive history. Because the whole comprehensive history is like doing a thing on the freshwater fishes of wherever, only there's an endless number of freshwater fishes. Yeah, good. Yeah, um, I've gone back and forth. This is Jean or Steino, and I my first rendition of the outline was all the details about you know yeah. science, and now I'm kind of back to like crime scene. There's a there's a outbreak, how we solve it, and you know yeah. getting all the players in and making it more more and jumping from time present day to past, and I think that will work. But. Uh, but no, I like like your point. I, and the other thing is that if you want to sell this book, the annoying thing that publishers will always want is, can you give me a, a synopsis of your book in two sentences? And then they say, can you give me a synopsis of your book in a paragraph? And then they say, can you give me a synopsis of your book in a page? They keep going on it like I, I, they just will. And you always think like, no, my book is too complicated because you always think that. 
And then you have to do it. And, you know, you realize like every book has to do that. And so the synopsis can't be the story of the famine told, you know, from a historical perspective. No one will buy that. Right. But if you say like, okay, this is something that affected blah, blah, blah in a way that we either didn't previously understand or that new techniques in, you know, the analysis of the pathogen are helping us or we're now realizing that the pathogen had other, you know, something like that. You're pointing, you must have one. And that's, I think that helps. And then, then you're at peace with the, there's always something more you could find out. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. It's in the, the, from the beginning outlined and now it's changed. So yeah, Yeah. very good. Good advice. Thank you. I enjoyed your talk. Okay. And we're going to have to call it there. We have reached our time, but if everyone had helped me thank Marlene for the wonderful (laughs) perspective.